0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is the 3D Pod. And as always, I'm here with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, I have friends in Ukraine, so that's not good. That's not good. Uh, and uh, but uh, I'm in New York, which is good. It's a really very very strange time to be me at the moment. So who do we have on the 3D Pod today <laughs> to make our lives <laughs> well? Yeah. Less. Well, okay, on the three, with regards to the 3D Pod, it's it's very very good. It's very very positive um because we've got steve deke uh with us today and steve is well somebody well he got started as a as a, a engineer aviation engineer at GE McDonnell douglas and he started he, work, he started working for one of the first service bureaus at the time in the stereolithography in like 1994 very early and later on he worked for hasbro uh for rap managing rapid prototyping for them like toy companies were one of the first companies to adopt 3d printing but we'll hear more about that i think uh because the overlap between Max and, uh, and Steve. And then later on, he worked for Huntsman. Huntsman was one of the key material suppliers for 3D printing. Uh, he works for the AMUG, of course. And then he spent another 14 years at G Aviation, uh composites engineer. And then at one point, he was the, the principal engineer at G Additive. And now he's done kind of a career switch to becoming a farmer. Uh, so, welcome, <laughs> Steve. Uh, That's quite the yes, yeah, story.
1: <laughs> yes. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So 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 Steve, you, you uh, house farming by the way. That's a, that's a, that's quite different, I would think.
1: You know, it's a it's a life of leisure, but I get to wake up every morning and decide what I want to do. And uh, uh, we have 21 acres, so I did you know split the big city and, and went out to the country and and uh, and so we have 21 acres of uh, of pasture and and woods and creeks and just. Uh, it's, it's peaceful. So.
0: Wow. And what do you farm anything? What do you farm actually? We,
1: we, uh, bale, um, hay. So it's, uh, you know, for feed and then, you know, obviously some gardening and things like that, but mostly it's, um, uh, we do some hay baling. And so I, I, uh, I call that 3d printing of, uh, of hay with a renewable, uh, yeah, a renewable, uh, bio source.
0: Well, it produces a lot of errors or, (laughs)
1: Actually, we had a, a first-time yield of one on our first harvest oh, wow. this year. <laughs> so uh, we we had uh, we had eight hundred pound bales, round bales yeah. that we did. So it's uh, it's quite exciting, um, but you, it's like watching the grass grow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Literally, Literally. <laughs> before that,
1: yeah. it's like three D um, printing, watching the grass. <laughs> the grass grow. I mean, you watch one layer at a time. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. No. Exactly. So okay. So before the farming. Uh, before the gentleman farmer, you got started as an engineer. And when did you first get, get in touch with three D printing? Because this is like a way before everyone else, I think.
1: Oh my gosh! Um, I I started. Uh, I was actually at GE Aviation or GE Aircraft Engines at the time in 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, an SLA one and an SLA 500, okay. and it was like a 510 something like that it was, a, so so. Um, There were two machines there and um, eight years previous, I started out at Douglas Aircraft and I was actually a a test engineer uh, and and manufacturing R&D and lots of things out on the West Coast in California. Uh, But then uh, fast forward, we came back, my wife and I came back to Ohio and started at at GE uh, Aircraft Engines. And again, I was a test engineer shooting birds into jet engines and doing fatigue testing of jet engines and things like that. And then this uh, opportunity came up it, it, that um, I think everybody feels like they just fell into this, you know, the the luckiest person on, on earth when you, when you, when you luck into three uh, D printing for the first time. And um, so again, we had a an SLA one and an SLA two uh, five hundred, and uh, oh my gosh, that was that was nineteen ninety one, and um, I, and, and I can tell you that I was the only person in. GE Aviation to do 3D printing at the time. So I was like employee one, if you will, if you, you know, you look at GE Additive and everybody doing 3D printing now at GE and it's, you know, there's thousands of people doing 3D printing, but I was like, you know, <laughs> that was person one. Um, again, most of the, what we were doing were just design iterations and, and visualization. Um, it was, it was truly rapid prototyping. Well, not so much rapid at the time <laughs> by today's standards. Um, it, it was, um, the software was, was, was very much lacking. Um, the the, the sterile lithography lab at GE was part of the photoelastic lab. So this is 1991. You didn't really have any uh, finite element analysis. You didn't have the, the finite element tools that you have today. So what they did was photoelastic stress testing. So we would actually make models and then cast photoelastic models from urethane or I'm sorry, from RTV molds. That's, that's the standard that we use. So to do stress testing on new designs, we would actually make a, uh, an SLA model. Um, but there was a lot of benching, and you know, parts were brittle, and you know, you'd have a lot of time and effort in, in refining these models, and then it would break before it got to a earth, or, you know, before it got to a rubber mold. And there were just lots of things like that. But what we were really doing in the photoelastic stress testing was we were validating a lot of the uh, early finite element analysis. You know, you had to have empirical data to go with the analytical data until you've had enough confidence in the analytical data that you didn't need to do the (laughs) empirical things anymore. So, so, you know, I mean, that, that was really what we did. And, and so not only were we, we were doing photoelastic tests or we were doing those, but we were also doing design iterations and just a lot of, um, you know, just visualization because there was, again, every, everything on a screen looks 18 inches or 24 inches, right? You just don't have any, any scale, but everybody becomes an expert at a part when you hold it in your hand, you know, nobody can read blueprints and things like that. That's been an age old problem. Uh, But when you hold it in your hand, everybody becomes an expert. Oh, you missed a fillet here. Oh, you did this here. You know that. So, so those things I think are, were so important then and they're still important now. I mean, when you think about it now, when you, you know, you, you type something in a word processor and you print it out and go, Oh, you know, that doesn't look right. And you just go back and do it again because it's easy to get a a paper print. Well, the same thing with 3d printing, you, somebody will design something up, you print it real fast and you go, I missed this fillet or this, this, you know, lots of things that you should have caught in the, in on the screen, but you end up doing it in plastic or, or at that time plastic instead. So. A lot of design iterations, things like that, and then we actually started to experiment with making flow models, where we would actually flow, um, you know, two x or four x models in a water table. We called it a water table, but you'd actually flow water through it and inject dye into it and watch the, you know, you, you know, flow or like uh, fuel mixers and things like that. We would we would do those kind of things. So we were doing lots of things. Um, that we didn't know any better. We just kept doing it because, hey, let's try this. Just be open. Mm
0: Right. So, Steve, just 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 so you know, when Steve says he fires birds at jet engines, um, you have to know <laughs> that a bird strike a bird strike can bring down an aircraft. That's, That's really correct. Important. And actually, I think what I heard is they use frozen turkeys and frozen chickens. To do well, that you stuff.
1: have to thaw them, but they are frozen at some point in time. Now, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> otherwise, people would get the impression <laughs> that you have a cannon. There's there is a, a cannon, boat,
1: and it's right? it, and it's it's either um, it's either. Uh, uh, gas fired it's it's it is a long cylinder let's say 6 inch diameter or whatever and it will create a, an exit velocity equivalent to what a bird would see you know the velocity of a bird 500 miles an hour 300 miles an hour whatever whatever you need uh more than likely it's bird strikes happen at takeoff and landing so so they're they're usually you know 100 miles an hour 200 miles an hour something like that
0: Yeah, but I'm just saying, is the bird is dead, and like Purdue Farms or something killed it, so it's not like you're.
1: (laughs) You know, Canadian geese are particularly difficult. You know, I mean, that's a that's a whole different. You know, trying to keep birds away from, you know, airports is is a is a whole different science. But yeah, there's there's times where you you know um, you you take a bird ingestion and 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 in the days of of um, metal blades on fans fan blades were um, they're basically titanium and they're hollow uh, you know they're diffusion bonded together they would fail catastrophically where you'd break it off halfway mid-span or or down towards the root depending on where you took the strike and then you have this tremendous imbalance in your in your fan and then and then even worse if it was uncontained if the if the blade went through the containment which ends badly but um uh, you know, those are the kind of things you have to test for. And so we test containment, we I test- I just
0: want to point out, I just want to point out yeah. you weren't like shooting live birds. No, 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 they,
1: they are, they are, <laughs> everything's done according to federal law and all those things, you know, so it was, you know, and then we do thaw them out before they are they are launched.
0: Yeah, and also the, if we talk about people who started get additive really very early, we're talking, most people have the first printers, the SLA-250, uh, which I still like N3 system says the like, SLA one is Correct. their first commercial mm-hmm. system, but I'm not entirely sure it's like commercial is the
1: right. Well, I mean, I, I think I had serial number 20, so I didn't get, you know, so I had, um, so it was an SLA one, it was an SLA one and, and it, it you know, it was DOS based and you did your slicing at the computer with a, I want to say an eighty eighty six. I mean, it was incredibly (laughs) always terrible oh Oh. well you know you had to in the dos commands you had to type in all your all your uh command character. you know so you know x hatch y hatch um upfill down fill you know all these all these parameters and you could get up to about 256 characters in a command line and, you know, with comma delimiting and things like that. And if you missed a decimal point or if you missed a comma, it, you know, this, these machines are just literal. They do exactly what you tell them to. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you would, you would start slicing a part, which could last 24 hours <laughs> and uh, you come back and you have to start all over again because you haven't been able to slice the part correctly. Um, so there's, there were lots of challenges back then, but you know, we, we were just bullheaded enough to make it work. <laughs> I'm curious, I'm curious though. Why not use a, I, and this is, I just don't know at the time, but why not use a sun workstation at the time? It feels like that would have been a better Well, that those came, those, those came up later. And when you, you know, we had, a, you know, we had a Silicon, gra- we, when we graduated to a Silicon graphics, um a workstation with a four uh, with a quarter inch dat tape drive we thought we had arrived i mean it was oh my gosh you know because we're not using stacks of (laughs) of three and a half inch or i'm sorry five and a quarter inch floppy disks i was gonna
0: say you're using Oh yeah yeah
1: and then you know double-sided double density and if you had a bad sector and i mean there were so many things that went you know in the in the whole process chain that could go wrong that would Keep you from going home <laughs> for days, and uh, I'll never complain about a slice. No, maker. no, you. Uh, but but <laughs> again, we were we were just you know we were just bully enough and dumb enough and hard headed enough to to we're gonna make this work. And I you know you hear people sleeping by their machines. We did it. We did it because you know when did it fail? Why did it fail? You know, it's lots of things like that. We were we were hell-bent on, on making sure that we could get these things to, you know, to, I'm going to outsmart this machine. This machine is not as smarter than me. <laughs>
0: yeah, we're against the machine. But, and then and then when did you really think this is the future? I mean, when did you bump it? Because at the time, there was like a couple – there was one technology, and later on SLS was developed a couple of years later, the FTN, yeah. and, and then everyone was selling as being their own technology. So it wasn't really clear this whole 3D printing revolution idea as a concept was still had to be invented in 2010, 11, or whatever. So, so when did you really think this is it for me? This is like, I'm going to specialize in this. I'm going to do this for the rest of my career.
1: I think, uh, you know, after the f- couple years into it, I mean, it was, I, I, well, when I started going to the, uh, the user group, I didn't, I, I worked about three years in the lab before I actually went to a user group and actually confessed to other people that I did this stuff. <laughs> but, um. Uh, you know, when you, when you saw the enthusiasm from other, from other businesses and you, you, you saw the passion for the industry and I just thought probably 1993, 1994, I just felt like we are, this is an industrial revolution. This is not a, a, just a passing technology. That's going to go away. This is going to change the world and I just felt that, um, and we were always, one or two technologies away oh if we could have a better material oh if we could have a you know more power on the laser oh if we could have this it was always one more thing if we wish it, you had that it would it would turn the corner um but you 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 always you always knew it and you just couldn't understand why other people didn't see what we saw (laughs) Uh, it really i mean it's just like you you can't believe what we do and everybody's everybody's you know you you can't explain it to them in enough detail because they don't have anything to refer it to now when you talk about 3d printing i think most everybody gets it but we had different names for it back then it was rapid prototyping it was sterile lithography it was uh digital manufacturing it was all sorts of names for it but now everybody understands 3d printing and we call it that
0: was there anything that you think that there was that
1: one thing that helped it turn the corner to become more kind of mass known i think i think that you have to go all the way to when metals came out and, and maybe not when they first came out, but when they started to expose themselves to the world as, as, Hey, this is a technology because the, the ding on, you know, most manufacturing people say, I can't use UV curable polymers. Right. And then you say, okay, well, I can't use um, FDM uh, because uh, the, you know, materials, even though they're thermoplastics. It, just you know, there's always some design debit or things like that, right? So, but when you got to metals, you got you really ended up with with a usable part of, of engineering properties with you know rot rot properties, and and you know then we got better about hipping and doing things like that that you know hey th- you know the materials really got until the materials got there, I don't think we were going to ever get there, but now we've got something that we can use.
0: Yeah, and yeah, what people were really using is that like polymers got started first. And we had multiple technologies in polymers, but they also yeah. kind of got stuck in that prototyping corner for the much the longest. Well, prototyping, and then I think the the, the application that made money for everyone was the molding, right? Uh, so yeah, it got stuck there, right? Because it was there, and metal went from being nowhere like a lab technology to being functional parts much faster
1: correct yeah they they, uh they did they and and, but they took advantage of all the building blocks that that polymers you know the 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 laser polymers uh uh, developed you know all the scanning technologies and the uh you know a lot of the axes control and things like that so so there's a lot of things that 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 were built upon uh because a lot of the metals machines looked like a a polymer machine you know obviously with a different laser system and and feed system but uh, I think they, they benefited from that, but uh, uh, yeah. The, one of the things that I always found is you're you're only as good as the worst part you ever did. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> makes up their mind on the worst part you ever did. So I never let. I I tried to avoid ever letting a part go that I did that I had to make an excuse for, like something was wrong with the part. I would never let a part go that way because everybody's going to make their mind up about that part, um, and they'll see it, and you can't talk for it anymore. And so you made sure that you didn't let a part out that wasn't perfect or the best you could do. And so that was the problem is you had, and I remember in, in some of the user group discussions that we had you know, about service bureau standards and things like that, because there were certain service bureaus that had different quality standards you had some that were just making parts. And I know that let's say the good ones always got angry with the ones that weren't as rigorous because, they were giving them a bad name, right? Because if people were, you know, whatever they saw was what they made their mind up on. And it's usually the lowest common denominator. So, so that, that hindered the, the industry for a long time, but it didn't, you know, when it didn't help that the materials were still brittle, you drop it on the floor, it breaks into pieces and, you know, it curls and all those things. But when, you know, materials got better, uh, laser control and build strategies got better and, those kind of things started to change the corner. Now, you still had all the post-processing to do afterwards, which nobody ever wanted to talk about. And you still had to clean the part up and strip it in some chemicals, UV cure it. There's lots of post-processing to do. But, um, hey, that's, you know, we, we just kept forging ahead one one bite at a time until we got the elephant. <laughs> oh,
0: that's okay. And then and you decided to our a draw in 94, which, I, which is like super duper early to try to do something. I like thought, was that, was that very Yeah, idea?
1: well, um, I was working at GE and that was a very difficult time for the aviation business and anything that was not a core competency was going to be let go. And so I knew that the sterile lithography lab, photoelastic lab, I actually was, was dissolved. All those guys, I'm watching them uh, get laid off. And so I... Uh, hung on and hung on. And then you finally go, I, there was a, um, accelerated technologies, um, was the DTM service bureau that DTM decided they didn't want to compete with their customers. So they, they, they sold their service.
0: bureau. Right, the internal and, yeah, yeah.
1: and so that became accelerated technologies. And so, uh, they came after me to be their, their SLA guy and the, you know, Cincinnati service bureau, cause they were still in Austin. And so I brought sterile to them and cast urethanes and things like that. So, and then we had some SLS machines there. So, so in, in in a couple of ways, it wasn't, I mean, I still had to, it was still in Cincinnati. I didn't have to move my family. i um, just, you know, and it, it just gave me a different perspective on, on the business. I, I think everybody wants to be their own boss at some point in time, but I find that I am too driven to, um, own a company because I would never go to sleep or <laughs> those kind of things. So, you know, you, you just feel the tremendous pressure of, of, um, of day-to-day operations and you, you know, you gotta, everything's quick turn and you gotta turn things over fast. So it's always, you know, you take an order and you're a short order cook, you gotta get it out. And, uh, so, so yeah, that was, a actually not, not too long. My best customer was Hasbro. And, um, uh, just looked at him and I, I, I said, you know, build a relationship with a couple of the VPs of engineering. I said, you know, you need to understand the value proposition of what you're doing here and, 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 you know, maybe take this internally. And I said, by the way, i would be help you with the, with the cost justification. And when it's time to build your facility and, 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 and start the machine and hire your people and train them, I'm your guy. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. so, yeah. so a little bit May about
0: accelerated. Way. Before we go into Hasbro, I'm yeah, think, yeah. Accel- DTM was the company. Well, we're gonna read it a little bit carefully because, like, depending on who you listen to, different people invented through, uh, SLS. Uh, uh-huh. of the <laughs> Fusion. uh it depends who you are, but um, uh, but generally, S uh, well, 3D Systems tried to commercialize it, and so did AOS, and then, uh, and then, actually, and DTM probably invented it. <laughs> Or they they commercialized it as well, and then they were later acquired by 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 3D Systems. And these machines are still really quite incredible machines that uh, that really work to the very day to, to the present day. Even though the, some of the sure. uh, the early 90s are incredible. And uh, so the fact that you worked for the first outsourced, uh, well, the first kind of one of the first SLS service bureaus in the world as well. <laughs> <laughs> i just think that's, uh, I think that's amazing and then also they end up you were one of the first internal uh shops as well because you had the g but at the time when we surveyed the landscape in the beginning of the 90s you know there are very few internal and external providers service providers out there yep
1: yeah uh, so
0: what was it like to hasbro i mean because like max is from the toy industry and stuff so he knows a lot about this kind of stuff but what was it like <laughs> trying to do this technology to hasbro i think the problem there would be that people would want you to do too much or not understand what you could do or
1: uh it was, it was a lot of evangelism to, you had to go out and, 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 and sit and talk to people. Now you're, you are you got there's, there's a couple different arms of, of, um, of Hasbro. So you've got the Nerf guns and the super soakers and the uh, G.I. Joe vehicles and Batman, all those things, right? So you got vehicles and, and what looks like a mechanical item. And then you have uh, action figures and Things like that, which are sculpted and 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 organic and, and those types of things, so, you've, so easily we w- were able to move into the uh, Star Wars um, uh, vehicles and uh, Nerf guns and lots of prototypes that way with Play School. Um, uh, really, you didn't have much Milton- pushback from like I'm sure there was like a massive model maker group at that oh, time. Oh, they yeah. yes. The, they were the, the traditional model makers. Yeah, there's, but we sent the output of the stereolithography lab, went to the model shop. Oh, a, and then they'd
0: clean it as, up. or whatever. Okay, yeah.
1: Correct. And then they, so if you were making, if you are familiar with, say the the Star Wars X-wing, you know, that's just the, it's got a lot of detail. They've got these, you know, really the wings on that, it's got tremendous detail. Well, we would just make the superstructure and they would go back and put wax on them and, and, and detail out all the uh, solar panels on them and make it look incredibly stunning, right? It would, then they would cast a urethane of it real quick, and that was their that was the model that they would start to refine. The big thing about making models for 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 um, for toys is that you need to get into a cast urethane very quickly from a stereolithography um, part because um, again the, the parts were brittle and you start investing a lot of time finishing out a stereolithography or any type of polymer part, drop it on the floor and you've lost everything. So they wanted to get to a cast urethane in a hurry and then start uh, modeling in the traditional way. So, so that was the start. We had to kind of enter into the model making where they would accept us to enter. Just like i see say, you know, in, in metal casting, you have to kind of, you know, casting shops are are pretty much set in their ways on how they want to accept a, a pattern, and the same thing with with uh, with traditional model makers. So we do we were able to make pretty much a superstructure with some detail in it to give them something to start with. Now there was also design iterations where we would engage with the designers right away, and they would get some uh, what were a little more. Um, elementary models or, you know, we give them whatever we, whatever we could so they can make uh, form and fit, uh, designs. The interesting thing about toys is that the, the cycle, the design cycle to manufacture is very short. So we're talking about six months to eight months between the time that, you know, so it's got to go really fast. Um, but when we went to, uh, the, the harder part, well, we, we even fooled around with some, uh, we had a, a DTM, uh, uh SLS uh, 2,500 plus. I actually got, I had a chance to either get the last of the 2000s or I could get a 2,500 plus, one of the first ones when we bought. And so I said, of course I want the latest and greatest. So, so I got the 2,500 plus and we actually started fooling around with uh, uh, PA-12 with, with uh, copper loading in it. And uh, we were making uh, injection mold inserts. And, it, and it, we were actually able to get you know 200 300 shots of uh, you know n- you know injection molded you know small parts nothing nothing earth shattering. Thinking about it at the time, in, NC machining wasn't all that easy either. You you start with a model and then you have to try to toolpath it and you and, and make a, a quick mold out of aluminum. Was it still all that easy in the mid 90s? So we were experimenting with lots of ways to make tools at the time. Um, so we would do some injection molding, but we've quickly figured out that that didn't, um, that, that really wasn't a, a strength of, of polymers anyway. And then we would make um, prototype packaging. You know, you, you do your vacuum molding of uh, blister packs for, you know, for, and, and packaging. Uh, we had a little vacuum machine that you'd put a piece of plastic over and pull a vacuum on it and not over this. And you, you, quickly make a a blister pack or a packaging for for toys so it, there were lots of opportunities to replace traditional wood manufacturing if you will or some nc machining um, then we got into uh, trying to get into the action figures and that really I, that was that was tremendous because you know you get these designers that are sitting at their desk, truly at a desk in an office with a pot of hot wax. And they're sitting there and they're daubing it on and they're carving it off and, and they're doing this work. And then they get, come up with an action figure of some random size, whatever scale they decided. So they're going to make, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. They're going to make a, a, you know, they're, they're them out and they, they, it's some size, whether it's three inch or four inch. And then we would scan it in with a cyberware scanner and then we would give them back a scale model of whatever they need you know whatever up down we just uh, you know whatever size they needed to give them to the right size and they'd go back and re-sculpt over it because when you scale something the nose gets bigger or the you know something happens right when you scale things and uh, they would go back and retouch it until they got what they wanted. So we were actually, I thought that that was a, a really good application in the, in the toy business that, that we were able to scale up and down very quickly and, and, and help the, the sculptors in a time where some of the 3d sculpting tools weren't there, you know, a lot of things. I and mean, everything was very manual back then. So we were just looking for opportunities to help, uh, you have to have somebody with an open mind. Hey, I can think I can help you. And we just kind of worked it from there. Even if he gave me a, a, a mechan- you know, a, a physical model, I'll scan it in. And even back then, you know, you're trying to stitch all these scans together and, and uh, it wasn't easy. I was going to
0: ask, I feel like the scanning is the hardest
1: part. In this. It, was, <laughs> it was, it was. Like, and and try, to it NERB, try to get it into a nerve, try to get it into a nerve surface. You know, this is when Raindrop right. Geomagic was out and just came out and things like that. We're trying to find ways to make nerve surfaces. And so, yeah, it was, the scanning was very difficult to do. Nothing was easy back then. Now it's all, you know, it's all automated, but we were doing it by brute force. <laughs> also,
0: like, so now we're talking about a period that not a lot of people know, because this is when a lot more people come into the industry. Correct. Right? We're talking about like 2000, 2001. Right getting bigger it's it's like it's like now all of a sudden not only hasbro has a lab but everyone now every every major city has like a, a service Yep. Room. so it's it's kind of unique to say like what's what's changed about these first 10 years here if we're talking like the period like 91 2001 kind of thing what has changed in 3d printing in that period
1: um i you know i don't even think prices came down when you think about it the the the, the cost of the you know, equipment was you know you know what i mean, I mean the, the cost of a sla we always laughed at you know sla 5000 was was, you know, $500,000, right? You know, we just put zeros on the end okay. of the whatever. Prices in
0: the name. Yeah, 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 <laughs> two,
1: 50, yeah SLA 250, $250,000. Um, so, so uh, and prices didn't come down, but I think that, I think that, you know, obviously the software got easier. Um, you start getting a critical mass of people that have the skills or some skills. There, There isn't mm-hmm. enough yet, but there's, you start getting a, a core of people that can start to then teach other people. So um, when you think about, uh, you know, 2000, you, to going to the 3D systems user group, you'd have 300 people showing up, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, now, it, it, and so, and before that it was 150, you know, back in 1994. Right. So, so, you know, it, I think that, that kind of tracked along with the amount of, machines going out there. And I think you also had, because of your awareness of the technology, then you also found out who was using it. There was, a, I guess this is a little bit more of a support system out there that you could talk to people. And surprisingly, you could get a lot of support from from other users and you'd think, oh, they're giving away their proprietary technology or their their, their intellectual knowledge. But even you know not giving away any of that, you can still have a conversation and drive the technology forward. And I, I just think that that it just took time to ferment the amount of people in the in the technology to grow more people. <laughs> and then again, about that time, two thousand, you're you're getting metals are starting to come out. You've got you had MCP had their machine and and things like that. So you had some. And EOS had their machines, so you had some uh, metals going on in the background, which again I think gave the, the whole industry a tremendous amount of credibility.
0: Yeah. If we then look, because like, cause like I, I, yeah, think about it. Like the first, like you, your 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 decade in out of is extremely long, or your 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 time out of is extremely long. So you have the beginning period, which is like what I call the getting it to work period, right? <laughs> right. Because yep. that was just like experimentation. Now yes. we're seeing kind of more something like repeatability, reliability, kind of series, not series as in like products, but like you could make something and then the next time it might actually work again, you know?
1: Well, uh, yeah, that's a, and, and that was a lot done. of focus. <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of focus that I, that I had on my last 15, 20 years of, of, of additive is, is, is trying to make the same part over again and, and, and make it not only on the, on the same machine, but on different machines, which meant that you could take a build file and run it on any of your machines if they were all set up the same. Um, that was what we were trying to do. And you find out that every one of these machines are snowflakes, right? They're all just a little different. <laughs> They're all just a little different. And you've got to try to figure out what the per, what parameters are critical in the machine setup and what parameters are really critical in the build styles and, and the build strategies and the build orientations um, there's there's a there are fifty different things that you can do and you gotta you gotta control the input to control the output. That's really where we were, is that you gotta and, and so we were trying to figure out okay, I've got 10 machines and I and they're all I, I got to run these parts and, and I would need to run them on any machine because I, I view, a, I always said the bus is leaving the station in 10 minutes, which means I'm going to start an SLA machine, right? So I, I got to, you know, the bus is going to leave at different times and you either get on this bus or you get on the next bus, but, I, but it shouldn't matter what machine you run on. So yeah, that's really where we were is we were trying to figure out. And this took years. This took years to figure out the, the critical X's in the in the process, to figure out what to control to get the the same output, or what was. And then at the end, we call it entitlement. That's, a, that's kind of a that what we, what are we entitled to expect for accuracy and repeatability? And so that's where we where we ended up. And and when you're trying to qualify something for an aviation. Um, or any to aerospace, you've, you've pretty much got to fix everything. And you qualify based on machine and material and machine setup and all these parameters. So you have a process map of how you're going to do that. So you change anything in that process, you have to call, almost have to re-qualify. <laughs> it gets a little crazy. So you, when you, when you see some parts being built on old machines in aviation is because they were qualified on that. This isn't just, just like an injection mold machine or a machine, uh, a vertical turret lathe or something like that. I mean, you you qualify on that machine, you move that machine across the shop, you got to re-qualify that machine again.
0: Yeah, I, I also think that a lot of people don't understand just how how heavy the lock-in is, not only on qualified parts, but generally on parts generally with additive machines and polymer metals. Because even, it's not like if, if in CNC, pass would go bankrupt, right? And you would have to use a D to Mori oh no, right? I mean, there's no real cost. You may be an aviation component, you'd have to requalify but but sure. you could do it the same or whatever, but, but that depends, right, on the component. But, but an additive, you would really have to do it again. You, you would have to go, if there was no AOS, like you, AOS, you would have to do it again. You, there's, there, the, another machine would, would build up a part completely different.
1: And there, every, every brand of machine, every, every yeah. nameplate has a different and then unfortunately even of like models of cons- you know uh, you know consecutive serial numbers of machines, between machines yeah yeah they all they all behave differently but again the strategy right. was to try to figure out laser powers all sorts of things in the setup that you would do the setup of the machine the preventive maintenance schedule how you're going to monitor process monitoring to know that the, the system is drifting out and try to, and try to control it within a set of parameters so that you got an acceptable result every time. And, and then, if, then you also knew if you had the health report of the machine to know when it was needed to take it offline and, and recalibrate it.
0: Yeah. Or and so, also people forget there's like all, all sorts of a environmental concerns. I mean, I think it's more of an issue with powder fusion, but like, for example, parts, the temperature, the humidity in the room can have effects as well. And also, like the, the post-processing steps, so you're not only talking about the machine. There's tons sure. of stuff happening afterwards as well,
1: right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah the 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 quality of the of, of the of the IPA, if you will, you know, the, the water content of your IPA will mean a lot. To, <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and IPA just wants to to pull water out of the or you know, out of the air. I mean, it's you start out with ninety nine percent and you end up with ninety percent before you know it. So you got to be really careful about that too. So there's, um, and even the, the resin in the vat, you know, it'll change its, it's, it's um, uh, characteristics over time, how reactive it is to uh, UV dosage, um, you know, the temperature that it's run at. There's, there's all sorts of, there's just so many little finite nuances of how to make the process work. And it, it's maddening in some ways, because you're always trying to whack them all over here and then and then something else rears its head but you just have to methodically just keep peeling it down until you get to you you may have not you're not even may not even be working with the the the, the biggest elephant in the room but you're trying to what you you only deal with what you know until you figure out what you don't know
0: until <laughs> yeah oh, totally, uh, I think that's a good point. Because- the thing is, the funny thing is that that the, the you then later on you worked for you're seriously you're like the Forrest Gump of three D printing because later <laughs> on you worked for Huntsman as well. So then you were on the other, no seriously, it's funny, it's funny because it comes back. Yeah, it, it's my favorite it movie back, by the way. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Uh, it, it, it comes back to to GA Aviation as well, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so 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 first you worked on the material side, so they were like selling materials and helping people with their challenges. And also, again, was it with this repeatability that was like the run-to-run differences of machines, features, or what were the...
1: Well, I, I joined Huntsman, um, and and uh, that was when 3D Systems split with Siva Geige. So you think about Siva Specialty Chemicals was the supplier for 3D Systems, and 3D Systems was going to go and buy... A, a, resin manufacturer that made Acura materials. I'm trying to think of, Bettina Simon was her name. I can't remember the name of the company, but anyway, um, they were splitting off. So I decided that this was an opportunity to, you know, you know, again, uh, be service bureau or service manager for North America for resin manufacturing. What our what our value proposition was, is that we could sell resin. If we could make you consume resin faster, we'd make more money. Right. So we have to you have to go in and you make their machines run faster and be more productive with that. But we what we found out was as soon as uh, 3D systems split with Siba and Vantico took over or, or um, uh, and then it turned into Huntsman you lost half of your customer base and half of your price <laughs> right away. And so, um, but anyway, what, what, we did is we went into, uh, customers and not only, um, provided resin, but we also provided uh, productivity. We would, we would maintain their equipment and give them, uh, specialized build styles that would, that were customized for their application and tried to make them more productive. And again, the, the idea was, Hey, if you consume more, you'll buy more. And, uh, that's, that's kind of where we, where we were. So we had three engineers in North America and we, we serviced our, our customers in, in, uh, all, uh, all over, but it was, you know, mainly, again, it was all sterile um, for CEPA specialty chemicals or wrench shaped materials at the time.
0: And then, and then after that, again, again, and then. This is like the weird thing. So now you're fully immersed in the whole three D printing thing. You're Mister Three D Printing. <laughs> now, at this point, since '91, and we're talking about 2004 and stuff, right? Yep. And then you start working in 3D in, and composer which is kind of like a different kind of.
1: Well, um, the uh, service business. Being a service manager, you are on the road quite a bit, and. Uh, I had, you know, young kids and um, I felt it was more important for me to be at home. And so I actually, funny funny story is I called the manager that I quit on at GE 10 years to the day and they hired me back. But this time this manager was doing something else. And he, he brought me in to a composites role. He says, hey, you're working with polymers. I'm going to put you in the composites group and we want you to work in in, in that group. I said, okay, that, that sounds good. I, and, and, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, as soon as I get my uh, foot back in the door, I will get back into, into, into directly into 3D printing. But in the meantime, when I left, they liquidated the entire uh, organization. All the equipment was gone, and it went to Greg Morris. <laughs> so, so Greg Morris. Oh, my God, I didn't know
0: this.
1: This is so funny. This is a, this is a, <laughs> this, so Greg Morris bought the equipment. From GE, okay. So, oh, I got I got stories on this, but anyway, but uh, <laughs> so anyway, so Greg Morris bought all the equipment. So he's running a, a service bureau selling to GE again because it was not a core business and they could buy it outside. That was what the what GE's uh, uh, that's what their <laughs> plan was. So, but I knew they bought a like an EOS machine and they were trying to do some things with. And I was trying to get back in there, but uh, in the meantime, I'm working composites. But when you're working composites, you need tooling. You need drill fixtures. You need forms. You need lots of things. So 3D printing came in came in handy for that. You know, you, you right. can machine stuff out. But we we did a lot of lot of things with 3D printing. Um, uh, if you were doing a repair you, and you needed to make some scarf joints, you could make router guides to make scarf joints on on um, on composite repairs, things like that. So we did a lot of things with 3D printing, and you just had to again that was a that was a whole different clientele to try to introduce that. Um, it, technology too. So in some ways I was still in it. And uh, in fact, I was still active in MUG at the time and didn't, I would take, since it wasn't part of my, my job to be a 3D printer, but I but I would take my vacation and go to AMOG and, and, and do that because I still wanted to stay involved in the community.
0: Mm-hmm. So. I like that you say to be a 3D printer as in referring to the person like that
1: oh yeah i i become we all become one after a while <laughs> you become the machine yeah you know, you have to think like the machine you know, so. <laughs> know.
0: Know. and then but then so the joke is of course the joke is why yeah, max and i were laughing is the joke is of course that Drake morris went and built essentially the, the core competency for making aviation components right
1: yeah 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 he he spent 10 years well you know with with ge as a partner he's they spent maybe eight to ten years working on the fuel nozzle in metals. But the funny thing was, if you go back, so so Greg had bought the and Morris Technologies and his partners, they bought the GE equipment and and some other equipment along the way. I think he had a Hellas' machine, which was which was pretty fun. Oh. <laughs> um but anyway, but well, I was down at Hasbro at the time, and and every once in a while they'd run out of resin, and I would run up the interstate and drop them a five gallon bucket of resin, and then this, you know, and and then maybe a month later when they got paid for the job, he would he would send me my five gallon bucket back. So we had a very close relationship. I always laugh at at, at Greg. I said, Hey, you know, I helped you get your start. <laughs> <laughs> So he, said, he he takes it well, but I said, you know, when I used to give you, ever loan you resin to 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 tide you over, so <laughs> that was, those were fun times. Just
0: out of curiosity, because uh, what GE's um, in Ohio, yes. right? The that. Right. So, were you in Ohio then? I, or you weren't in Pawtucket.
1: I was uh, in Hasbro. I was in Cincinnati. They didn't close. The reason I ended up the reason I ended up leaving Hasbro is because they took the model shop and they had a pretty much the identical. Um, all they needed was my equipment, and they didn't need a manager. Right. And then, so they took the equipment and my people, and I got. Uh, Shown the door, (laughs) you got shown the door. Everything else went to ruin. I really, I I never thought that I was—I really never thought I would lose my job being competent at it, but I did. But anyway, (laughs) um, but anyway, but I I it, You know, it's like everything else—you land on your feet. You know, you you, you take the ego hit and you keep on going. So, um, you know, I ended up at—you know—obviously, 3D was my. I went to actually work for 3D Systems for about ten months, and again, that was a lot of traveling. And I was an applications engineer. And, uh, you know, I worked for 3D systems for that long. And then the SEBA uh, split happened and I ended up going to Vanico and Huntsman from there. But uh, just looking at opportunities, you just kind of adapt and you look for. Right. Um, I think all the way through my career, I, I, I really. I Very few times did I ever say no to an opportunity. Um that made sense, obviously, <laughs> but you know, I mean, right. you, you know, but but when somebody came up to you and said, "Hey, I think you need to go work over in this area," it's like, okay. Um, and in that composites time, I ended up doing some uh, wind turbine, um, you know, actually, you know, wind turbines out down in um, in the in the desert. We were doing composites repairs up tower, and uh, it's like, sure, I'll go, I'll go out there. I mean, I am super scared of heights, but you know, let's go. And we did it. We, you know, we went out there and we, we were repairing uh, turbine blades and in the field and and doing things like that. And I got loaned out to uh, GE Oil and Gas down in Houston and spent a week a month down there because of, you know, whenever there was some opportunity to go see something else because that just builds your your arsenal of all the things you know, and the, and also the people you know. And so I was like, sure, if you think I'm I'm your guy for it, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And um, but then I found my way back into um 3D printing again uh with the with the with the turbine blade uh uh initiative. So,
0: yeah, that, so that, that was actually kind of weird because everything looks really weird. Your whole career is all random. And yes. also with the turbine blades it seems like you're like <laughs> you're the only guy in the world that knows where this is going. Right.
1: <laughs> it, you know if I if I look back to, to, to nineteen well even in the eighties, I you think about it. We had we had fifty engineers with one PC in the whole department at, at, at Douglas Aircraft, and I had no clue. This 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 industry was not even invented yet. And then here's where I you know, where we are now, and you know so it's uh, all these things have just you know wandered their way. The water always finds its way to, and here I am. <laughs> this is the 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 result of all my work. But the last
0: part of your career must have been really kind of difficult because now we're talking. The last stage, we're talking about what I call the clipboard stage. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, everything has to work. Everything. This final element analysis, which didn't exist when you got started, now yep. all of a sudden we're using it. To, we need to qualify stuff. We need to have run to run. We need to sign off and say, you know what? I am the design engineer. of This, I uh, this is qualified for using a rocket or a, a rocket and air engine. And we need to be able to make a million of them without making mistakes. So yeah. Well, creating...
1: CAD, You know, even CAD systems got so much better um, that we could make these nuanced changes that we had no capability of doing before and some of these really odd shapes that used to collapse on themselves and do stupid things, right? Now we can do these really complex shapes in CAD that we couldn't do otherwise and we never did otherwise. And so, you know, with uh, some of these new jet engine turbine blades that have these unique shapes that you can't make any other way, you know, we were building the cores. And so, you can't make it by traditional pull and you know, it was very, you know, pull molds and things like that. So we were doing things that, that were completely technology enablers. And, uh, and there was a lot of pressure on it at the time because we really hadn't done it yet, but we'd already sold it. You know, the, our, you know, we'd already sold engines with a technology that was going to have a, you know, a, a, some type of efficiency and efficiency, usually means core temperature that you're going to have a hotter core temperature and you're going to have, you know, you're going to burn things more completely. Right. It's going to, so, so, you know, you've got, you need to have hotter and hotter capabilities Well, you have to have, you know, cooling to go along with that, or it's going to just burn up. And uh, so these 3d cooling shapes that we had inside the turbine blades really enabled the rest of the system to work. But we, all along, we're we're struggling to make these parts work and get the surface finishes we need, things like that. I mean, we started out with an RA of and and, and you know of a thousand or eight hundred. It's really in, incredibly rough, and then you turn around and um and and so uh, by the time we got done, we had RAs of less than ten, and and so we were quite happy when we finally figured out all the X's that go into making a reliable, and then you have to make thousands of these at a time because, you know, there's so many castings you have to make. So, so, uh, yeah, I try to try to put it all back together. I mean, drawing on everything that I knew for the last 25 years and then, you know, putting it together, saying, I think this is going to work. And, you know, how do you know that? Well, we used to do this way back when, just trust me on it, let's just try it.
0: So you come up with like, this is going to be a revolution in 1995 or something like that. Yeah. Then all of a sudden it, it, yeah, it still, it still takes so long for it to actually be wider, gain yep. wider acceptance.
1: The expectations just keep going up. It wasn't that, that the, the expectation stayed steady. It was, it always went up. So now we're, now when you're dealing with, with, with turbine blades, you're talking about ten ths of an inch. You're talking about super high accuracies and super high repeatability. And, uh, and so those are the kind of things where, you know, you, you, you either it's yes or no, you either pass or fail, and and it, and it's a it's a ten thousandth of an inch difference. So you got to be, you have to pull everything back out. And it, it took us several years to get you know start to get the uh, uh, the hang of of how to make them, and then and then make batches of them in tw- you know fifteen or thirty at a time on across multiple machines, day after day after day. Wow. Dude
0: well steve steve
1: thank you so much for your time this is really fascinating i really
0: really enjoyed this it's a lot of fun yeah no, know it was uh, f- fun
1: to to learn some of this history and to kind of delve back into it hopefully at some other point we can continue this
0: yeah and yeah definitely definitely and, and thank you very very much for listening this is another episode of 3d pod my name is Joris peels i was here with maxwell vogue and steve Deek today and uh thank you very much for being here have a great day You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.